On your journey through life, you are the hero. There are times, however, when it is beneficial to have an advisor to guide you along your path. Welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh, certified financial planner, certified investment management analyst, and co-founder of MP Advisors, LLC. In this podcast, Brent discusses some of the most important and interesting topics of the day as they relate to finance, the economy, and beyond. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Smart Money Simplified with Brent Mikosh. Brent, what's going on in your world? What is going on? We're actually going to discuss a topic today that I think has been really out front in terms of what's happening in financial services and the financial industry overall. Controversial topic we're going to wade into today is ESG investing. Mm. I first, um, you know, I first started getting some calls from clients a few years ago that were very much in favor of looking at some of these ESG solutions. That's environmental, social, and governance. So think about um, green standards, maybe hiring standards. We're going to talk about all that today, but but uh, definitely standards around some of these companies that may include a political agenda. The tone kind of changed for me in terms of dealing with some of my clients, again, not all of them, but some of them over the course of the last probably six to 12 months or so, where a lot of clients did not want anything to do with ESG investing. They didn't like the mm-hmm. fact that their dollars were potentially being used to leverage political ideologies they just didn't agree with. And it's definitely become one of these hot button issues. So I've got a fantastic guest today. I've got Matt Cole. Um, little background on him. This guy's definitely a big deal in the industry. He he was with Calpers before, which is of course the California uh, pension pension fund essentially, where he managed over seventy billion dollars worth of assets with Calpers. Wow. And yes, yeah, so a big big job. I mean, Calpers is literally the elephant that comes trumpeting in the room whenever they're moving <laughs> money around. And he's made the jump over to uh, Strive, and right now he's the chief executive officer and chief investment officer. And Strive was something, uh, I guess it's probably a good segue into our conversation, Matt, is Strive was an organization that was really created kind of in response to the these ESG standards that were being put through through the industry. Is that is that a correct assumption? It, it's a correct ins- assumption, but it's not the full story. So first off, thanks for having me. And to frame the conversation where I think the most important debate is for this entire debate of ESG or against ESG, it's actually upstream of that. And what it is, is the what? What is the purpose of a for-profit corporation? And our belief is that that actually has much more to do with shareholder capitalism or stakeholder capitalism rather than pro or anti-ESG. And so if you were to take a historical look at America and American capitalism. It has been shareholder capitalism, which is the definition that the purpose of a for-profit corporation is to maximize value to investors. That is the fundamental purpose. Everything downstream of that, all other stakeholders are important. Your customers matter. Your employees matter. You want to have, you want to retain great employees, but in order to maximize profit to your investors. That is shareholder capitalism in the nutshell. It is what has been the underpinnings of American capitalism and is what has produced greater returns to investors than any other form of capitalism ever, also more technological innovation. That's what STRIVE stands for. That historically has also been what most large asset managers stood for. Then in 2019 is when that changed. And what happened in 2019 was there was an an initiative from the business roundtable that's purpose was to redefine the purpose of a corporation 
or American companies away from shareholder primacy or shareholder capitalism towards stakeholder capitalism. And stakeholder capitalism is a model of capitalism that has been the primary model in most European countries for the last 40 plus years. The stakeholder capitalism model states that all stakeholders are equal to each other. There's not one stakeholder that's more important than the other. So it moves the investor down on the importance level. I was actually at CalPERS when, when that happened, and we can get into this if you want, but that to me was when I became very interested in, in this subject and it eventually led me to strive. But I saw that as the biggest fiduciary breach that's ever happened in American in corporate America. And the investment implications of an asset manager, asset managers, which the largest asset managers all committed to this, of moving American corporations away from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism, Strive has shown on our website that it's over a 3% return difference per year to holders of American corporations if that actually is implemented in its entirety. And we think that that would effectively bankrupt every public pension in America. It would completely devastate the average American that has right around $100,000 in their 401k system and frankly could not be done or should not be done unless the actual end asset owner consented to that. And today we don't see that at all. I think that's the biggest thing that I've that I've heard quite a bit from some of the people that I've worked with where, you know, and again, I'm, I'm going to stay politically neutral during this conversation. My clients, quite frankly, they don't pay me to have a political opinion. But those, particularly when you look at, at some of the, you know, the the major money managers that own that are running a lot of the index funds, for example, they're basically voting, they're proxy voting on behalf of millions and millions and millions of their own shareholders. To, to give you an example, if you think of like an S and P five hundred ETF, you're aggregating the funds of a lot of individual investors of extremely diverse belief systems, and and they're voting for for specific initiatives that, that people may be morally opposed to, they may be financially opposed to, they may be economically opposed to. And I do want to touch on real quick and I want to, want to continue your line of thought here, but I want to clarify shareholder, shareholder versus stakeholder. And I think, you know, as the shareholder, you are the person that, that essentially has put up your capital and you're doing that in, in hopes of gaining a rate of return for it. As a stakeholder, you might be some, you know, somebody that perhaps works for the business and there is a difference in, and I have, I've heard this example several times where, you know, you can you can talk about a factory worker and saying, well, why do these why do these individual factory workers they should share in all of the profits, all of the money that's been generated by this factory, and the owner should not get a concentrated portion of that. My answer to that is always, well, you know, guess what? The owner has his capital at risk. The business fails, he's out of business. His capital is taken away. The worker can go somewhere else. And I think that's a real important distinction. I mean, would you agree with that? Absolutely. And, and and even if I disagreed with that, or if or if you as an asset manager disagreed with that, it is not your place to change the incentive structure of corporate America with your client's money because it would cost them money. That's that's the first and foremost argument is that changing this incentive structure, this model of capitalism, would cost investors money. And so investors have to consent to it. And I think that's where you move this away from political beliefs, because we could have a different debate on is any of these different agendas or these different votes at these, these companies, would it be beneficial to society? Yes or no. 
We think that's a political question. And really, it doesn't matter if your opinion is yes or no. The question as an advisor or as or, or the, uh, what should an advisor needs to communicate to their investors is what are the investment implications of these decisions? And when you've gone upstream of that and said that you are deprioritizing the investor already, anything downstream of that, it would make sense that they could have a mandate or perceived to have a mandate that could do, vote shares in certain ways that might cost investors money because they've already said that they needed to redefine the purpose of a corporation. And so I, I, I actually remove emotions and remove the politics of a lot of these votes because I, I do think that there, a lot of them are political political decisions that would cost investors money. But even if you might agree with them, you might still not want your, your capital to be going to them because it would cost you money. And frankly, America has a retirement crisis. It's yeah, very true. Yeah, most people, their their savings that they have for their futures are, are dramatically underfunded. Yeah, I'll play devil's advocate a little bit here, though, and, and say that in, in pure capitalism, I, I view, and I'm happy to have this philosophical discussion with you, I think that, that pure capitalism without a a set of values and a moral foundation does not work either because then it almost it almost becomes um you know the gloves are off in every possible capacity and you don't you don't manage companies may not care who they run over so specifically around um i don't want to pick on any specific businesses but i do know that i've got you know certain clients that will not invest in certain in certain industries and in certain sectors of the economy when you're looking at just maximizing shareholder value, though, isn't there a risk of all the all the the costs that might hit society in a broader way outside of the shareholders? Like the shareholders may, might make a ton of money, but the family that's living in the shadow of the of the refinery now has bad water and bad air. I mean, what what are some of the, the considerations that companies need to be having with that? Those are important conversations. I think there should be transparency in the discussion, and. Those discussions and those rules, those limitations happen at the governmental level where every citizen has one vote and one voice. And it's not the corporation's job to constrain themselves from making profits beyond government regulations. For, uh, it's just not their job. And it's not a financial advisor's job or an asset manager's job. And some of the, some of the pushback that we get sometimes as well DC is, is gridlocked. Nothing is happening in DC. So the asset manager has to act for climate change purposes or for DEI purposes, whatever those purposes might be. And my response back is that we live in a very politically divided country. And on any of these issues, there's a substantial percentage of Americans that are on both sides of the issue. And our firm belief is that the government regulations, the rules of the road. And if we're going to use a sports analogy, let's use a football analogy for a second. Imagine you had football players that said, hey, we are so strong. We're so fast. We hit each other and we're causing brain damage to each other. Let's constrain ourselves on the field. Let's not hit each other as hard because that will lengthen our lives. That will allow our brains to flourish longer. Well, what would happen would be that some players would say, no, I'm not playing by those rules. And they would go hit harder and they would get the big contracts instead of the other company, the other players that artificially constrain themselves beyond the rules of the NFL. The right way to do it is change the rules of the NFL if you actually want to have that conversation. Because even the private in the in the public markets, 
let's say you have an energy company that constrains the amount of pollution that it pollutes in, in the name of climate change. That doesn't change the demand that there are that there is for oil today. So it creates opportunities for other companies, whether it's a public company, whether it's a private company, whether it's a company in America, whether it's a company in China, right? Another company can pick up and, and supply and, and produce that supply that that other company, maybe it's Chevron, reduced from the marketplace in the name of maybe it's a CalPERS. And, and so that is that is one of the big things that we're seeing. And we're seeing a, a pickup in other, in other countries where China has picked up some explicit projects that we've called out that American corporations like Chevron discarded. Um, that's one problem. We're also seeing a lot of opportunities in the private market. So one, one of the things that I think is really interesting with the fixed income background is that certain sectors are being explicitly constrained, sometimes cut off from several different players from being able to access the capital markets for debt. And what that does is it, it could, it kind of squeezes these companies to death, right? Because they can't access the capital markets, but it also creates massive opportunities for other asset managers that are taking a pure shareholder capitalism approach to the world like Stripe. And we are actively considering launching private credit funds right now because of that. And this isn't a pitch about why Stripe's doing it. I'm saying we shouldn't even have that opportunity. And, it, and it's happening because of this artificial constraint in the name of ESG or in the name of stakeholder capitalism. But what ends up happening is that you actually produce excess return opportunities for other people that are still playing within the rules of the game, but are taking a shareholder capitalism perspective to the markets. Yeah. And uh, another thing I think that's, that's worth discussing here is when we talk about ESG, environmental social governance, it, that's a really broad term. There, there's no real standardization in terms of what that means. It's, it's very subjective. Can you possibly educate our listeners more about how broad of a term that really is? And what does it exactly mean at a fundamental level? It really means nothing. And part of the reason that it means nothing is that environmental, social, and governance go together like banana, window, and airplane. They're, they're just three random, they're three different risks that actually don't have a correlation and oftentimes would conflict with one another. And so when you think about standardization in the industry, there is no standardization in what ESG could mean. Our there's several different measures that are out there, correct? There's there's several different measures. And, and, and what I see, and I'll call it the corporate ESG movement, and I see a lot of it focused overly on politicized issues like the environment and like diversity, equity, and inclusion measures like racial equity audits or scope three emissions at these corporations. And less of a focus on societal issues that I think that there would be more of a consensus on. A, a classic example is on the S side, you might have a, a vote on a racial equity audit at a company like Apple but there's much less focus on labor issues in China or like the Uyghurs or something like that. Like there, there are people that, that I think discuss this and debate this from probably more of a true first principles approach. I've seen it. I've seen it at uh, Stanford has, a, has a, a board that talks about this quite frequently and some conferences on it. But the corporate ESG movement as a whole, I think, has really fell short of those standards. 
I think when you when you look at ESG research, a lot of the ESG research, I think, is lacking in basic statistical fundamental analysis and lacking bias. So like correlation versus causation issues, sample size issues. And what I think at the heart of it is, is there's already a conclusion that's been reached that wants to be supported by the ESG movement and then biased research is done to support it. And I think the the result of that is, is research that lacks a rigor to actually stand the test of time. And I think it's why you're starting to see several university professors actually talk against some of the ESG research and, and, and call for better research, which I think will be a good thing. But I'll actually call for unbiased research that actually is okay with what the result is, even if it's something that might not be friendly to the ESG, corporate ESG movement. Now, do you think that, um, do you, you believe that these, the CSG movement is being used to, to basically put a, a certain view of society or a political agenda onto companies specifically? Yes, we've called out several S issues specifically. And, you know, Strive is politically neutral. We take a stance of maximizing shareholder value, period. The issue is, though, that effectively every single S issue is left-leaning. And so I think that there are people, there are companies that are now starting to pop up that are pushing S issues on the right. Strive's going to be standing against those as well. But where we, how we got here was a push of corporate America to the left. Now you're seeing a response from the right that also has a values tilt to it at times. And Strive's stance is that both of these are completely value destructive and that corporations need to be focused on maximizing value. How you do that is what we call through excellence, where corporations focus first and foremost on providing excellent products, excellent services, hiring the best candidate, meritocracy, period. And anything outside of that is focusing a company away from its core mission. Right, which which automatically, not automatically, but potentially could could lead to you know, lower performance by the business, lower, lower, lower returns to the shareholder. Now, I, I think this is a good segue into some of the lawsuits that are out there right now from states attorneys generals, basically looking at the fact that asset managers have a fiduciary obligation to maximize returns to their shareholders. That's that's the goal. And I guess the the crux of the argument is that they're not doing that by going after some of these other issues. Can you give me an update on what the status is now in terms of different lawsuits that are out there from states AGs? They're all over the place. And I think they will get more honed in on, on what the actual best path forward is. My opinion is that it's been overly focused on specifically ES and G, and it needs to be focused on stakeholder capitalism. Because if you want to talk about a fiduciary breach and a movement away from a focus on pecuniary factors to non-pecuniary factors and in investment decisions, which is at the heart of this lawsuit, the most important part of that is when they explicitly move away from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism, by definition, they are doing that. And, and so I, I think where they're going to run into trouble is that when it's explicitly focused on E, S, and G, there is a version of E, S, and G that could be under a shareholder capitalism model. My argument against uh, about, uh, about that though is that's not what we've actually seen from the ESG movement. 
We've seen the ESG movement be a means to implement a stakeholder capitalism agenda. But what we're seeing in response to a lot of these lawsuits and a lot of this pushback to the ESG movement is a change away from using the phrase ESG. So I was on a panel a couple months ago in San Francisco for UC Berkeley and the a former colleague of mine at CalPERS and now the, the head of sustainable investing at Franklin Templeton, she ended the commentary with RIP ESG. She's one of the biggest ESG proponents out there and a friend of mine. But even on both sides, it's like the term ESG is likely going away. BlackRock removed ESG from their 2023 proxy voting guidelines, but still had a significant portion of them to discuss environmental, social, and governance issues, but ESG was removed when ESG was explicitly mentioned in their 2022, 2021, 2020 uh, guidelines several times. Even the CEO of Coca-Cola at the World Economic Forum this year, he made a comment to at a, at a speech to other CEOs that the term ESG had become too politicized, so he was going to stop using it, but he was not going to change any of his actions at all. And he's a big proponent of stakeholder capitalism. So that's what he was referring to is he's still deeply committed to stakeholder capitalism, but he's just going to stop using the phrase ESG because of the politicization of that word. So I think that's where some of these lawsuits with the AGs might hit a snag. And I think it's because what's not going to go away is stakeholder capitalism. So even if ESG goes away, I think there's a risk of on the, on the policy side of of an incorrect con conclusion that the problem solved. The problem will not be solved until there's a complete rejection of stakeholder capitalism in America. Or, you know, if, if there's people that have that have different um, values that they want to invest upon, then by all means do that. I think one of my concerns is, <clears throat> as a financial planner is, you know, I want to have the the broadest range of, of hopefully successful investments available to my clients. And I do, I do think that what some of this is doing is if you look at the number of publicly traded companies right now what is it two percent of all the com com you know corporations in the united states if even that high are publicly traded otherwise you've got this massive you know private market and 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 the more that you get i think some of these different constraints placed placed upon in you know publicly traded investable companies debt instruments that type of thing you're going to start to limit the the ability of, of people to get access to good investments and I'll, I'll give you an example of that i was speaking with a friend of mine very successful running a business with revenue in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And my question to him, we had this discussion. I said, how do you feel about all this? He said, I could care less. He said, because you know what? He goes, all, all the money that they're dealing with is essentially coming in through private channels. And there aren't these same constraints put upon them. He said, so what I think you're going to see, and I think there's some truth to this, is you're going to see one pool of very inefficiently companies that are managed toward, a, toward an ideology and then you're going to see another pool of companies that are that are managed to to maximize shareholder value to to bring great products and great services to the investing public and you're going to see a bifurcation of that and one of the amazing things about our financial system here in the United States is you name me any other place on the entire planet where over the last decades you've had people with the ability to individually benefit from the success of say Apple or individually participate in the growth of Google or Chevron or pick a company. And the fact that in very, very small increments, there's the American public and, and the investing public around the world 
can invest in that, has access to that growth, has access to that innovation. And then I'll get off my soapbox here in a second. But at, fundamentally, this is a really optimistic business we're in. We're, we're in this business because we think the future is going to be better. If not, bury your money. Who cares? But the, but to the extent that the pool of good, investable, publicly tradable investments, there's always going to be private equity, and we, we do that all day long with a lot of clients. But publicly traded assets that most of the people, not just your extremely wealthy, have access to, to the extent that you constrain that pool, that I have a problem with that. And that's kind of, I think, my big, my big issue with what I see going on. I mean, am I on track there? You're 100% on track. And it's something that I think we're at a place where the, the constraint from the public markets has created a massive opportunity in the private markets today. Huge. Huge. I, I, I wish that wasn't the case. Yeah. Um, and we are fighting in the public markets to make that not be the case or to limit the amount of time that this becomes the case. But you are right. You constrain public companies. And all you do is you limit the amount of supply of whatever we're talking about yep. on a short-term basis. And if you think about basic economic, economics 101, and if demand is unchanged and supply is constrained, the price goes up and it creates an opportunity for another business to pop in and earn you know, outsized economic returns. And, and that's what we see today. It's why it's completely ineffective. And the unfortunate thing is that people like your clients or public pensions are the people that end up holding the bag because that reduction of supply is in the companies that they own and it's it's a it's a it's a sad reality because then you know if we want to think through you know like 2008 and then the you know, the pushback against wall street and all the outsized returns that's flown to you know the richest people in the country well this is directly creating private market opportunities that only accredited investors could even invest in. And exactly. it's it's gonna end in a way that's not gonna, it's gonna make the problem actually worse over the long run. Because I look at that, you know, the asset class that I'm most excited about now is private equity. And because in, in periods where we've had dislocations and prices like we have right now, uh, usually in many cases, the vintages that have come out last year and this year and potentially in the next year, if passes any predictor of the future, they have been in the past successful. Uh, but I can't get all my clients in that. You know, not everybody is is at that level of wealth where they can qualify for those investments. So, so to me, it's that constraint that that, that I find uh, problematic. Now, let's let's look at at what this has really done in terms of impacting companies' access to capital. And take me down, take me. Let's go back through history. I believe one of the first ESG letters was written. It potentially was to Chevron. I think it was one of the major integrated oil companies back in two thousand six, two thousand seven, talking about how. You know, fossil fuels were not going to be uh, good for the environment, all this other thing. And as a result of that, a lot of the different energy projects that we've seen that probably have not happened in the last 15 years or so, because capital has been constrained to specific businesses. You've also seen some individual people debanked because of their some of their individual belief systems. So based on your knowledge and your expertise, tell me what kind of an impact in a target industry like, say, fossil fuels has that lack of access to to capital impacted our you know the standard of living that we all enjoy here in the United States because we have less now supply of things that we need on the market? Yeah, let me first give you a a, a brief history of what we've seen over the last call it fifteen years in the oil and gas industry because I do think the oil and gas industry is the most interesting case of an industry that's been in it 
that's been impacted by the ESG movement. What we saw is you had the shell boom, right? And, and oil, oil production in the U.S. shot up drastically. And then the investment into oil and gas in the U.S. actually was greater than probably was should have been the case. Bad investments were made, overinvestments were made in oil and gas. Call it from 2013, 2014 to maybe 2017, 2018. And you had the crash of the price of oil. Then what you had was you had an ESG movement that was happy to put the boot on the neck of the oil and gas industry while the sector was down from having made some bad investments and then constrain the sector from investing in high ROI potential opportunities over the last four to five years. And so that leads us to where we are now, where now we've had an underinvestment in oil and gas for several years, largely from the constraints of the ESG movement. You have not enough supply of oil and gas in the United States. We've been draining the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to almost minimal levels at this point. And where I, what I think we're setting up for is actually an oil and gas, a commodity super cycle over the next five to 10 years. And part of the reason for that is that the demand for oil and gas is often forecasted, even at oil and gas companies, specifically in Europe, like BP, to basically be declining at a faster level than it actually is, partially because of these net zero by 2050 targets. They model in this decline of demand for energy, for oil and gas specifically, that's not happening. And then when the demand is higher and the under and the underinvestment in the sector has been constrained, you can put a band-aid on it for a short period of time by doing things like draining the strategic petroleum reserve. And then you might have another constraint on the price of oil in the near term if we do enter a recession in the next 12 months that will lower the amount of demand for oil. But the underlying fundamental problem is that when and if the U.S. economy is operating at full capacity and the strategic petroleum reserve could be drained no more, the price of oil, we think, is going to go up pretty drastically. And I mean, so like we think at a minimum, it's going to make new all-time highs. The all-time high in the price of oil around 2008 was around $150 a barrel. We think that gets broken. And where you already have today is you have oil and gas companies like Chevron and Exxon that are making net profits equivalent to the most profitable, highest market cap companies in the world like Google and Amazon. If you put the burners on the price of oil, the bull case for energy is massive. And I think it's been directly caused by the ESG movement. And, and so it's something like we launched our first product drill in August of last year. And when we were thinking about launching Strive, the first product we were thinking about launching was like a, a 500 product, the most common product in the market. We ended up changing that and going with drill first. Part of it was because of how bullish we were with energy, but it was much deeper than that. We saw the oil and gas industry as the industry that had been the most negatively impacted from the ESG movement. It was also the sector that had employees from the C-suite down to entry level that had felt they had been put to been blamed for an environmental crisis where they viewed themselves very differently as providing a fundamental good for human flourishing. So they were mostly fundamentally against a lot of these constraints and were often asking Strive, asking our co-founder Vivek, 
to help take the boot off the neck of the oil and gas industry and let them pursue positive ROI investment. So you had this sector that was like, please help me. And in, in 2022, we sent our first, our first engagement to Chevron. You mentioned an engagement to Chevron in 2006 about, you know, about constraining them for environmental reasons. We sent a letter to them talking about how they are being constrained beyond U.S. law. And we felt like it was uneconomical, specifically around scope three emission policies that even their board had recommended against. And then investors, large asset managers, like BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, CalPERS voted in favor of them against the board of, of, of directors recommendation, imposed these constraints. We said, lift, lift the constraints and you can be much more profitable. When we did that, we had one of the other largest oil and gas companies in the U.S. proactively reach out to us and said, don't forget about us. So I think that's the, that's the sector that we're dealing with. They want to be changed. They want to be unshackled. There's a, there's a significant problem with the amount of supply that's being done. And it, I think it all relates back to the ESG movement. And I mean, we're pretty bullish on it for both public markets and private markets, but it, it's created inefficiencies. And, and as long as the demand doesn't go away, it's just a matter of time before I think that you see significant upside there. Well, I, you know, as an aside, we can talk about the oil and gas a little bit, because I do think that that is an industry. It's, it's basically dominated by your roughnecks and your incredibly tough individuals that are working the rigs and the platforms at the actual production level. You've got engineers, you've got you know geolog geologists, you've got all that stuff in the mid-level. Many of those people rise to the top. They've been terrible at telling their story in terms of how how significant the <clears throat> the positive impact of fossil fuels has made has made on our life. And I know that you know as someone that's uh, lived in New York City for ten years or so. In New York, it was really easy to say, hey, we don't need this stuff when your entire life is within walking distance. But if you're a rancher out in western Nebraska who is driving 50, 60 miles in his F-150 every day and making maybe 50000 for a family of five, it becomes real tough when all of a sudden gasoline goes from $2 to $5 or more. But I, I like to see them to the extent that I know that you guys have a little bit of influence in that business. They don't have marketing people, man, and they should because every single thing that we do in our entire life is being touched by fossil fuels in some way. And it's, um, I, I, I hope in the future anyway, they, they do a better job of telling their story. Uh, but that's it's interesting in terms of where, where you mentioned it's, it's creating a lot of opportunities. But I also think, you know, as a result, it's also creating some some unnecessary scarcities for sure. Now, let me ask you this. So you guys began looking at this from this angle saying, hey, we just want to shareholder shareholder capitalism. We're looking at companies where we can, where we can get agendas out of it and seek to maximize returns. Uh, first of all, how's it going? Because you're a relatively new company. And secondly, are there other people now moving into this space? First off, it's going great. So we have currently eight live ETFs. Our AUM is just under seven hundred million dollars, which for an asset manager that's been live for well under a year. One of the most successful starts for an asset manager that's that's ever happened. We expect to continue to grow. Right now, we're only in the equity space. We launching fixed income funds this year. We'll be entering into the private market space as well. It's been surprising to me that we have not seen competitors pop up, but we haven't. What we've seen is you know, Strive's taking the view of pro shareholder capitalism, staying out of values based conversations. What we have seen pop up is kind of the, the explicit anti-ESG conservative shops that are that are taking values-based approaches to investing that are very different than the pro-ESG shops. 
but we really haven't seen anything that I would say is a direct competitor's drive. It's been positive for us to see, not as a competitor, but that Warren Buffett has been very public about pushing back against stakeholder capitalism and pushing back against the ESG movement and taking a very pro-shareholder capitalism view. I find that interesting on a couple different levels is because we talk about how we are apolitical at Strive. And I think there's this push that any stance is political, whether you're right-leaning or left-leaning. Right, that's true. Warren Buffett is considered a liberal executive, a left-leaning individual, but also pro-shareholder capitalism. And I think that's where we need to get to is that making money within the law is not political. It's actually our duty in the investment management industry, unless our clients have dictated us to do something otherwise. And it, it kind of gets to the point is I actually, sometimes you hear pushback of I'm taking a neutral view. I'm seeing out of this. I just keep my funds with whoever. There is no neutral view here. There is a pro stakeholder capitalism view. There's a pro shareholder capitalism view. And every asset manager, every financial advisor has to take a choice, make a choice of what is the view that they have as the baseline for their client's capital. And unfortunately, there, there is no neutrality here. It's are you pro shareholder capitalism or are you pro stakeholder capitalism? And I think once there's a decision of what the baseline is for investing clients' money, then that leads you to the baseline of who, who is the best fiduciary for you, for you on behalf of your clients. Yeah. I think that you mentioned in terms of values and, and I know that pretty much everyone I know, and I would include myself in this, they've all got some beliefs or values that might be far to the right. And they also carry different beliefs and values that might be far to the left because people are, people are actually allowed to have a wide range of views on a lot of different topics. And where I think the freedom comes in is being able to exercise those values for yourself and not having them exercised on your behalf. Uh, so I think, you know, again, it's, I agree with you and I love the fact that you've, that you've made sure that this is not, you're not looking at this through a political lens. You're looking at, at this through the lens of like, what's our job? Our job is trying to maximize value for our clients. So, so I, I appreciate that viewpoint. Now I'm going to address uh, an, an elephant in the room here. So um, you guys wanted your founder, Vivek Ramaswamy. I, can, I pronounce his name correctly. Is that right? I always have a hard time with his last name. Vivek like cake. Vivek, Vivek Ramaswamy. So he is now running for president. And again, this is not an endorsement or not. My question to you from a business standpoint, has has this put you guys in the spotlight? Has it been a net positive or him now wading into these political waters? Because he did pick a side when he announced. Is that disruptive to the company right now? Well, first off, Strive has been in the spotlight since we've launched. That's true. Good point. we've, We've been, you know, very active in, on CNBC, WSJ, I think it continues to put Strive in the spotlight, but I actually think it's in a very positive way. And why is that? Because Vivek cares deeply about certain values, right? That's different than what we talk about when we talk about shareholder capitalism. He cares about values, but he is pursuing those by running for president of the United States. And why that's so important is because an asset manager should not be taking a stand on those views. And so where it would have been incorrect would be for Vivek to stay in his seat at Strive and pursue those same values, whatever they might be, whether it's, you know, shut down the Department of Education because of X, Y, Z, right? Whatever, whatever his values are, which 
can be debated and, and discussed as citizens of the United States. They have no place in an asset manager business. And he understands and respects that. And so when he felt called to run for president of the United States, he stepped down for Strive. He put me in as CEO of Strive to unapologetically pursue shareholder capitalism, maximization of values, and depoliticizing the corporate America, corporate America, which in his seat, if corporate America is depoliticized, it creates the fertile grounds in our public square, in our governmental process for the debates to be had and for every citizen to have one vote and one voice. So you can disagree or agree with him, but I think we should mostly agree as Americans. I know I think two thirds of Americans at least agree with this, that the correct place to have those debates is in our political process where every citizen has one vote, one voice, not in corporate America where three asset managers are the largest owner of effectively every single company in the S&P 500. And so I see that as the path that Vivek and Strive took of a separation pursue two different paths, although in some ways they could be considered related. What I see in other asset managers is attempts to govern and regulate from the seat of the asset management industry or from the seat of corporate America. And that's where I see a fiduciary breach. And Strive has taken a very different approach than that. Well, it's, I've, I have listened to uh, a few interviews that he's done, and he's definitely, he's a renaissance man. And and one of the things that I appreciate again, leaving you know, political leanings completely out of this, but the acknowledgement that in the past, what I took away from the last interview that I that I heard him do, in the past, I mean, you had some of the founding people in this country were intellectual giants of the likes of which we don't see many of those on the public sphere today. And unfortunately, a lot of our politics has been reduced to you know 140 character tweet. And that that's unfortunate. And and having the ability to again sit down like we've done today for forty minutes now, discuss issues, uh, discuss them in in, in some in some depth, uh, I think is 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 an important thing. And, and I hope at least anyway, both among our financial institutions, but also political institutions, I hope we do a little bit more of that. Well, I really want to thank you, Matt, for for taking time out of your day to do this. And I know you're a busy guy. Congratulations on your new role, and uh, hopefully hopefully our clients. Um, and people and listeners have gotten a little better idea in terms of what this ESG thing is and and what some of the repercussions throughout the economy might be of this movement. So yeah, if people want to learn more about Strive and, and about you personally, how would they do that, Matt? Strive.com, strivefunds.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Cole Macro, C-O-L-E-M-A-C-R-O. Appreciate it. Right. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Gentlemen, this has been fantastic. Uh, again, Matt, this is Great information, a really good insight from you, and I appreciate it. Brent, thank you, of course, for hosting and, and bringing on another great guest. And our last thank you always goes to you, listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Smart Money Simplified podcast with Brent Mikosh. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Brent comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask you to share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review, as this actually does help others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at MP Advisors, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? 
visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602-255-0555. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors, LLC, is not a broker slash dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services.